All right. Everybody okay? Good to see everybody here tonight. Glad y'all are here. And it is not often that I get to teach and or preach after eating two chili dogs with onions. And so I am not quite sure how this is going to go. But we'll get started in case we have to end, okay? But y'all turn in your Bibles to Exodus. I told y'all we'd be there. I think there was a few of you in here that believed we weren't going to do it. That we weren't going to go from Genesis to Exodus. Y'all thought I may find a way to go back to Genesis for a little bit. And I will in this, but... That's right, but but we are going to look at Exodus tonight. So thankful for each of you being here. Uh, I'll just uh, say again, what a great Sunday I believe we had here in the life of the church. I, and, and just um, just talking through, you know, whatever needs to change or do or make sure everything goes efficient. But man, y'all have been so kind with your uh, gracious words about Sunday. So I appreciate that. I know our staff does as well and we're looking forward to this coming Sunday as we will really begin in Acts. I'm serious. Um, we started our series in Acts in Psalms this past week but this coming, this coming Sunday we will be looking in Acts chapter 1. So we would love for you to be there and be a part of it. If you are, uh, if there happens to be a lot of you, I look around and you're home folk but if you happen to be a guest with us, just know that this coming Sunday we will have our lunch with the staff, an important part of the, the process of getting to know us and, and us getting to know you here in the life of our church. So we would love to have you come and join us for lunch with the staff. You can sign up for that, I think. I don't know, is Kathy still in here? Kathy, she's not got made it in yet. You can sign up for that on our website or just show up. My goodness, we're not, we'll give, I'll give you my plate, okay? It's no problem. I'll still be living off these chili dogs with onions. So we'll give you that. So uh, we'll have that done. So that's coming this Sunday. Love for you to be a part of it. And uh, another reminder, every week we send out our weekly update email to all of our church email list. Uh, and on that email has just everything that happens in the life of our church. So many things and that, that comes up and it's all there. So if you are not subscribed to that email, you can be just by either calling the office or emailing uh, the office from our website and just saying, can you put me on the email list? That lets you know everything going on in the life of the church, all the upcoming events and everything else. So be sure and be on that. All right. We're going to look at Exodus and uh, chapter 1. So I'm going to pray and we'll just, we'll just kick it off and see how, see how long it takes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here tonight. God, we praise you for your word. And as we look to your word now, we ask God that you would give, give us uh, your spirit to help your word to be applied to our hearts, to our lives, to everything about us, Father, so that we can live as better believers, better followers of you. For that is our great desire, not, not just more knowledge, but that knowledge that leads to faithfulness, God. And so help us to have that. And as we think about who you are and what you have done for us, Father, we pray, we pray that we would be a, peop a people that are grateful and thankful. 
I look around this room and I'm just thankful for uh, everybody that's come out tonight. And I just pray that as we leave this place, God, our thanksgiving for who Christ Jesus is will only grow greater as well. God, um, help us now as we look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, some of our life groups, I believe y'all are looking at a book called Life's uh, God's Big Picture, excuse me, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. In that book, Vaughn Roberts kind of summarizes the story of Scripture, and he uses something that I've used before that I think is helpful to remind us as we change from one book to another, that when we look at God's Word, we need to recognize that this is altogether one book. Oftentimes, we think of God's Word as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, on down the list. I know what's next, Joshua. I can keep going. Don't worry about it. But, but you think of it that way, and you think of it almost like the works of Mark Twain or something. And so you put these on the shelf. And each book with, with those authors kind of stands on its own merits. It may have some carryover, but it stands on its own merits with its own story, own plot lines, and that kind of stuff. And so you see the works of someone put there. But when you look at the Bible, that's not the way we are to look at God's Word. This is not a collection of just different books that have been placed on the shelf with different themes or different understandings. This is one book from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. This is one book. And ultimately, we recognize that this one book has one author. This is huge for us in, in, in understanding God's word, that this one book that we have before us has one ultimate author. Now, it's written by 60 some odd men over about 1,400 year period. But ultimately, as we read it, we, rec we see that all of the scripture is God-breathed, given to us by the Holy Spirit. So when we understand it has one author, we should not be surprised that there is a continuity about it. We can hold true to what it preaches or teaches us. Uh, we, we use words like inerrancy, this book, because the Spirit is its author, is without error. And not only that, it is infallible. It, it, it can't make error because it's God's word. So we can look at it. That makes it incredibly trustworthy. In fact, ultimately trustworthy. If this is God's word and he's breathed this and we know God who cannot tell a lie, right, has given us his word and we can trust it. It's enough. It's sufficient. All of those things are true because it's, it's one book with one ultimate author, the Holy Spirit. And when we understand it that way, then we know that this one book with one author has one main subject. Has one main subject. This book is not about how we can get to God, ultimately. This book is about how God comes to us. And that's the main subject of this. How can is the, the God of creation... The God of redemption, the God of consummation of all things. And so this is the one subject. And as I've pointed out on these things on Wednesday night, that ultimate subject can be defined in the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. And so all of scripture is pointing us to that. When we make the transition from Genesis to Exodus, this can be seen here. And it doesn't quite work for, for us in the English language. And so you know, I don't, I don't spend too much time going back. We know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, right? And so sometimes it is helpful to make a note of what it was in the original. We can read it in the translation and get God's word here to us, and we can say this is God's word before us. But sometimes it is helpful to make a note. 
The book of Exodus begins with a word that we don't, we're not, I learned growing up, that you were not to start sentences with what word? You might know this. No, I mean, I remember people told me this all the time. Don't, this is not a test. Some of you have already failed because I, I said it and you looked at me and had no idea. You don't start a sentence with and, right? Simple. I mean, how do you do this? A conjunction. You're bringing two things together. How do you start a sentence with and? Well, what's interesting about the book of Exodus is the first word in the book of Exodus in the Hebrew is and. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like it's saying the story is continuing. The story keeps going. By the way, when you look at the first word of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, y'all know what the first word of all of those are? And. It's one story that is continuing. And it's one story. Now, we know, as we, as we have said before, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Pent meaning five, the book of five, or the Torah, which means law, because it's where God's law is given. And so the first five books of the Bible, as Jesus said, who wrote those books? Moses. Moses wrote these first five books. So Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And he writes Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is a different little animal because Deuteronomy does not begin with and because Deuteronomy is him restating the history again in a different way from different angles. So he comes back and restates the history in Deuteronomy. But those first four books, Moses is writing these and he's using this as a continuation. In other words, when you get to Exodus, when you look at Exodus, you start with that and. What it reminds you of is that you can't know where we're going unless you know where, we're been, where we've been. And it comes right at the beginning, right? I mean, could you imagine picking up the book of Exodus without knowing anything in Genesis and just reading, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, with each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. If you didn't know, most of y'all who's been with me for a while, y'all know what all those names are, right? You can look at this and you've read it already. Reuben, he was the oldest, but he did some stupid stuff. Simeon and Levi were rough. They were harsh. Judah, he just told Judah the lion was coming from him, you know. And Joseph was already there. How did he get there? You know the story if you read Genesis. In fact, these first, this first verse here is an exact replica of Genesis chapter 46, verse 8, as they're getting ready to go into, into Egypt there. So it's just the same wording brought over. And so he's continuing this idea that there was a family that was formed, a family that was formed in the book of Genesis. And that brings us to the fact that now this family is in Egypt. And this Segway then teaches us that we got to look back, but what we're also doing is we're looking forward here. So we want to see what's gone on before us, and then we need to move forward as to what is coming. And what we see in the book of Exodus is that this family that is now in Egypt, this family with Jacob, who is also known as Israel, this one is there with his family and his son Joseph, who is there. This family, what we're going to see in just a few verses, is going to quickly become a nation. It says that these are the ones who came to Egypt with Jacob. These were the ones that came to Egypt with Jacob. Again, 
It's important to know what happened before. Why are they in Egypt? Y'all remember? No bread. No, it was a famine in the land. There was nothing for them to eat. And so these are basically uh, refugees of the famine that's going on in the world as they come in. And so that's what you would think. In fact, it tells us that many nations came to Egypt because Egypt was the only place because of Joseph through the Lord God Almighty who had provided for Egypt to be a place of storehouses, right? All the nations were coming to Egypt to find food during the famine. Jacob is just one of them. So this family is a refugee family that is running from the fact that there was no food. They're looking for food. And in Egypt, they have been taken care of. Now, remember what God meant for e what they meant for evil, God meant for good, and how he took care of them. Even though they sold their brother Joseph into slavery, he rose to power by God's grace in Egypt so that he could make a way so that they would have food whenever they came. So we know how that story goes in Genesis. It's no small thing. But this family now is coming into Egypt with Jacob. But we've got to remember that this is not just another family of of, of the nations that has come. This is not just one family amongst the others. This is a special family. And this family came to Egypt not just as famine refugees, but they also come because of the promise of God for the future for them. Remember uh, back in Genesis chapter 46. Y'all can turn back to Genesis. It won't hurt you. We won't stay there for long. Genesis chapter 46 Whenever they go back to get the father and bring him into Egypt, and, and, and Jacob has to make this decision, using the name Israel here in chapter 46, has to make this decision. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Now, a couple things we got to remember. You have the patriarchs of this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the ones that God spoke to directly at this time, right? He gives his visions and he speaks to them directly. We see him speaking directly to Abraham, of course. We see him speaking directly to, to uh, Isaac. And then we see him speaking directly, not just on this occasion, but this occasion in particular today, we see him speaking directly to Jacob. So God's word has come to them with a promise. It has come to them with the promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That promise now is going to be passed down to the children. Does that make sense? Once the promise is given to Jacob, the promise is not negated when Jacob dies. That's, you, you will find this out. And so the promise doesn't need to be given again because it becomes a responsibility of those who've received the promise to do what? Tell the next, tell the next. This, we call this one side of it evangelism and the other side of it discipleship. This is the way God designed things to work. This is how we naturally do things. When we learn something, we pass it on to the next person, right? When we figure out how to do it, we pass it on to the next. Now, there's some people that can't figure it out. I think Allison's in here tonight. Allison, I will never forget when one Christmas... We got Allison's 85-year-old grandfather a cell phone. It was really difficult to pass down to that, to pass up to that generation how to operate that thing. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so there's sometimes it's hard to pass on things that you, that you know, but that's how life works. 
You pass on your knowledge. That's what parenting is. You pass on what you know and you, you teach your kids and other things. And that's how God has designed his church. What we know, we pass on. What we know, we give. And that's been the case from the beginning. And it's the case now. For Paul tells Timothy, what you know, pass on to others, right? Train up others in what you know. And so the very nature of training discipleship is in our DNA in, 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 from the very beginning. And so here, the promise has been given to Jacob. It's been given to the patriarchs, and it's going to be passed on to the sons. And here this promise is given. He says, Jacob, Jacob. This is verse 2. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a what? Great nation. I myself will go down with you in Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So here's Jacob, just heard his son Joseph is alive. He thought he was dead. And they're trying to coax him out of his home to get him to go to Egypt because there's no food left, right? And so Jacob goes to Beersheba where he's sacrificing. God had met him before. He goes to make offering and God meets him there again. And God says to him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Don't be scared to go there. And know that if you go there, I'm going with you. And I'll be with you while you're there. And when it's time, what's going to happen? I'll bring you back. That's what God says to Jacob. He says, you go, I'll be with you, and I'll bring you back. That's a promise, right? God gives him a promise. So Jacob goes to Egypt as a famine refugee, but not just an ordinary famine refugee. He also goes to Egypt with a promise. He also goes to Egypt with a promise of God for the future, as if to say, that's where you're supposed to be. That's where you're supposed to be, Jacob. But notice also in that chapter 46, there was one other thing he said to him. He says, I'm God, I'm God the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will what? Make you into a great nation. There I'll make you into a great nation. And this way, he's tying this promise to Jacob back to the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. So flip back with me, it's okay, to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, he makes a promise to him. It's a threefold promise. It's a threefold promise. He says in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you what? A great nation. So he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. In other words, I'm going to turn you, Abraham, one dude, you have a couple people with you, I'm going to turn you into a whole nation of people. A whole nation. That's the promise he made. He reiterates that promise with Isaac, and now he reiterates that promise again with Jacob. And so Jacob hears the promise of God. He's going to make him a great nation. Go to Egypt. I'll be with you, and I'll bring you back, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 are three promises that are given, and I've said this before, and I'll reiterate it here. I believe it's the outline of the Old Testament. 
when you read the stories of the Old Testament, what you see is first, they're going to make them into a great nation. That's what Genesis is all about. And you're going to find here, we're going to see it in a minute. That's exactly what they say happened in Exodus. And second, what you'll see is that he's going to give them a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. When they're in captivity in Exodus, what happens? They go in, the Lord through Moses goes and gets them out of captivity through the 10 plagues, brings them out into the wilderness, and he's taking them where? To the land. At the end of the book of Joshua, they have the land that they had been promised, and they have inherited it, and all of the tribes have their land at the end of the book of Joshua. Then what happens? They begin to look for a leader. And what they find out is the blessing that God gives them is going to come through the man that God will put in charge of them, right? The king. And so for the rest of it, you see the king come about. It starts with the book of Judges. Because in the book of Judges, they're looking for that leader. And then it goes into 1 Samuel, right? And in 1 Samuel, what happens? Samuel finds David, who's the youngest of them, and he brings him up. They make a mistake. They put Saul in. Y'all get what I'm saying? The outline of the Old Testament, basically, in its history that's given to us is found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Word of God is testifying to the promise-keeping God. He's keeping his promises. And so this first piece of it then, he says to Jacob, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's okay. Go to Egypt. I'm going with you, and I'll bring you back. So when Jacob and his children go to Egypt, it wasn't just as famine refugees, they were going there as God's chosen people, family, going there as God's chosen family with a promise that they weren't going to stay there forever. God would bring them back out of them and he would be with them. So this is a special family that's going into Egypt. Now, in Exodus it tells us, these are the ones of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, it goes through the list, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, but then verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. Now surely this is important as well because Joseph and Jacob, maybe they thought we're just going to Egypt for a couple weeks, you know. Just let's ride out this famine, a couple years, maybe even, and then we'll be back. But when they get there, what happens? They all die. The whole generation of them. All 70 of them die. But what we see then and how that's important is this one generation dies. We recognize really quick that though they die, the promises of God do not die, right? The promises of God have not been, are not finished with them. They continue on just as God said to your generations and your children. And so it says here, all of them, all of that generation died, but verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Y'all know what that means? I hope y'all know what that means. They had a bunch of children. They come along and they do, in fact, what God had told Adam and Eve to do in Genesis chapter 1. This is hearkening back even a greater, another connection to Genesis when he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is God's chosen family doing exactly what God had called them to do in Egypt, but be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And it says that in this time, the people of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly, and the land was 
filled with them. The land was filled with them. They're overtaken. They're doing so well at what God had told them to do. They're overtaking the Egyptians. The land is filled with them. And so here we see that these promises were given to Jacob. They're passed on to his family. And that doesn't just mean the ones that come after him. That means the generations and generations after. And those there are thriving. They are thriving in life, having children, growing. In fact, when you read this, you get this sense that these Israelites who are in Egypt love life. They're doing what they've been called to do. They've established themselves there. They're they're loving it and they're growing. And in this you see that the promises of God for his people, his people in response to the promises that God has given them are to do what? Love life. Recognize that you have a promise that God has given you. So, So rest in that promise in such a way that you can enjoy life and it can be fruitful to you and you can you can flourish in life. God loves life and we see, he wants his people to flourish and we see that even though his people are in this strange and foreign land when they're faithful to do what God had called them to do increase and multiply then God blesses them for his glory and he creates a great nation and so at the beginning here of Exodus chapter 1 we see that God has fulfilled his promise his first one I'll make you into a great nation. He has fulfilled this and he's fulfilled it in this strange way that even though they are in another place in a foreign land and we're going to see this foreign land's not going to like them for too long even though they're there God still honors his promise with his people. God's promises are not thwarted By the next generation and the next generation, they last to all that he's promised to. God's promises are not thwarted. God's promises are not thwarted by being in this strange land in this strange place. He's faithful to do exactly what he said. And these people are holding to this promises and are living according to it. And so it says, the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then it flips again. In verse 8, we see something different happens. These people who love life, who are filling the land with their, with their offspring. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Time changes everything in many ways. I don't know if y'all noticed time changes things. I've got these today. Y'all see how that works? Time. Time changes things because all of Joseph and then all of the first generations are dead. In fact, if you, if you flip over... Just to to be clear, because it'll tell you a little bit later when they ultimately leave. Uh, Make sure I get the right verse here. Chapter 12 of Exodus. Chapter 12, verse 40. This is at the end of the Passover angel, the last plague. The Exodus takes place. They leave. Um. As they leave out and go, it tells us in verse 40 that the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. In other words, this generation didn't just pass out, pass on, die. Some of them may have passed out. But this generation in the next and the next and the next, right? And you see the greatness of this family keeps growing and 
even as some die, they keep multiplying and increasing and God is blessing. 400 years they're there, 430 years by the time they leave. And in that 430 years, we got to recognize something. They didn't hear another promise of God. They didn't have their Bible to open up. You know, they didn't have that. Moses is going to write this and Moses hadn't even appeared on the scene yet. In fact, we're about to find him in a little river as a little baby. And so they haven't heard this other than passing it down one from another. Other than teaching the next generation the promises of God. Other than those things, they haven't heard from God. They haven't heard a sound from him. I'm thankful when God's word speaks, God speaks. Amen. This is God's word. This is God speaking to us. If you want to hear God speak, open up his word and read it. That's what we have here. And we've got to remember what a blessing that is. But for them, they were waiting maybe even on another word from God. And he hadn't spoken for 400 years. Y'all know what happens when you go to a restaurant, right? You go to a restaurant, and you, nowadays in restaurant world, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm gonna, I think I'm going to air some grievances right here. Nowadays in restaurant world, you can go for lunch, and you can look around that room, and there are probably half the tables empty. And you say, I, two of us, please. That's going to be 45 minutes. And you think, what in the world are y'all doing back here? I can't wait that long. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? That's just one example of our impatience in this world. 400 years they hadn't heard from God. But they continued to do what God had told them to do based upon the promises that God had gave that they had passed on over and over and over again. And now there's a new king over Egypt. This gives us a place that this isn't just like the first new king over Egypt. There's been other ones, but this new king is different. This new king did not know Joseph. Now, many commentators think that that doesn't mean he hasn't heard the name of Joseph. Joseph's name, most would think, would have been famous throughout that whole area. What this means is he did not consider Joseph as one that he needed to honor anymore. Most other, it would seemingly be that the other pharaohs that had followed, the other pharaohs that had followed had remembered the promise of the pharaoh given to Joseph and his family. Y'all can go live in the land of Goshen and they're fine. Leave them alone and they've multiplied. Now this pharaoh doesn't want to honor Joseph anymore or his family. Because when he looks around, he sees this as a problem. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Imagine this. Egypt was the strongest nation in the world. They were the ones who had all the food. Everybody had to come to them, right? The wealthiest of them all. And Joseph had made them wealthy. And he says, this new Pharaoh says, they're too great for us. They're too mighty for us. This is how much they've flourished here in Egypt. They're too mighty. They're too great. Too mighty for us. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters, taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. In other words, they put them in slavery. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Isn't that, isn't that great? 
And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter and with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What happens here is you have a new king that is in power. This new king does not consider the deal that was dealt with Joseph to be kept anymore. That's over. Some three or 400 years ago, we don't have to keep that deal anymore, right? And so the new king says no. And when he looks around, he gets scared of how great this nation has become, even in his own nation, even amongst his other people. He sees how God has blessed them, and he doesn't know it's God that's doing it, right? He sees it. He recognizes God's blessing there. And he doesn't even know it's God. They're just coming too great. They're too mighty. They're too big. They're too strong. We've got to do something about this. So he sets them up as slaves. And what happens over this next little section, I think, is a contrast that you need to understand in Scripture. Remember, Genesis chapter 3.15 tells us that there's this serpent crusher who's coming, right? The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And as I've told you before, when we talk about that, that, that you see these two lines, basically, these two seeds that come through Genesis, these two lines, one, the seed of the woman, which has the promise of God with them. And that seed of the woman, which is, which is Eve, that comes down to this line, you see that goes right through Abraham. That's why it does the genealogies. It shows how generation comes and all these people are connected, right? This is the seed of the woman and how God is blessing. We're looking for the serpent crusher in that seed. But you also see the seed of the serpent come. You also see this right away in Genesis chapter 3 is when it happens. But what happens in Genesis chapter 4? Y'all remember? Cain rises up and kills Abel. And then, and then not only that, you see it continue when you get to Noah. You have the wickedness of the world and one man, Noah, the seed of the woman versus the wickedness of the world. You see it when you, when you get through, through Babel. You see all of the world is wicked and they have to be spread out. But there's this one man that the Lord calls, right? And then that one man, Abraham, becomes that, that family line that we see. But what we'll find in Scripture is that seed of the serpent will manifest himself in all kind of ways, in all kind of places, using all kind of people. And here he's going to use the Egyptians to try to destroy the seed of the woman. Understand, this is what the book of Revelation talks about in Revelation chapter 12. You ever heard of Revelation chapter 12? I preached that before here. Revelation chapter 12 has this cosmic warfare that's going on. This dragon that it says was the original serpent, right? They call him Satan. This dragon battling against the woman for her offspring. And it's this, it's this uh, poetic, figurative language that has been using of this dragon and when he swings his tails he knocks the stars out the sky it says all of the cosmos is involved in this warfare and he's waiting it says it has this picture of this dragon that's so crazy it says the woman is given birth and the dragon is waiting for the child to appear so that he can devour him it says that's imagery for exactly what's happening here in exodus chapter one God is flourishing the people of his promise and Satan has to stop it. He's got to do what he can to end it and now he's going to use Pharaoh and the Egyptians to try to do such a thing. And so Pharaoh puts him in bondage. That doesn't work. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other one Pua. I kind of like Pua. 
Allison and I, if we'd had another girl, we might try to use that one. I hadn't told her that before. Shipra and Pua. So he goes to these Hebrew midwives. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, it, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. That's exactly what happens in Revelation 12. They're waiting on this one to be born to devour it before he can get a chance at life. Because what's the fear? The fear is that this one who will be born is mightier and greater, greater than I. And he will end me. And that's exactly what the Pharaoh's saying. If they keep having babies like this, they're going to be greater than us. we got to stop them. That's Satan talking. we got to stop him because he could defeat us. And that's exactly what you see. And every time, every time in Scripture, and I'll just say this, it seems like that imagery is so perfect because every time in Scripture that this happens, who is it that takes the brunt of the wrath of the world and Satan himself but the babies? Molech will do the same thing. They'll, they'll be sacrificing infants to Molech here as Satan tries to stop them in that way. Pharaoh put them to death. Who else would do the babies? Y'all remember? New Testament? Herod would kill every child two and under trying to stop this one who's coming who is mightier and greater. Satan's desire, he doesn't care who it is. He doesn't desire anything other than his own self and his own power and his own strength. And anybody that can challenge that, he's willing to put them down, even the babies. And that's what's glorious about the truth of God's word. Satan's scared of a baby, right? Right? He's scared of a baby. Why? Because even the infants in the power of God have everything they need to destroy the enemies of God. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter here what kind of turmoil you put on these Hebrews, as they'll be called. It doesn't matter what kind of turmoil you put on them. It doesn't matter what kind of constraint. Throw them in slavery, put them to work, make them make bricks and all this other stuff. Do all those things, and they just keep thriving. They just keep going. So he says, put them to death. So Shipra and Pua have a decision to make. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, put the sons to death. I love verse 17. But the midwives feared God. That's good, isn't it? They're staring the most powerful man in the world in the face. And he tells them, when you see a boy born, put him to death. And the next line is, they weren't scared of him. They were scared of fearing God and who he was. Shipra and Pua are the first, I think, true, just straight up heroes in the Bible who have a command to put them to death and they know that command's wrong and they'd rather serve God than serve man even if it's going to cost them their life. And when the Pharaoh says put them to death, they say, no, we're not going to do that. We fear God. We don't fear Pharaoh. So they fear God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. This is a slap in the face, isn't it? For they are vigorous, 
and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I will tell you, it's not at this point. I don't know. Is Allison in here? Is she in here? She was. You over there somewhere? Oh, there you are. I wasn't going to. I was going to tell some birthing stories, but I probably shouldn't now. <laughs> I probably won't. It just tells us right here that these Hebrew women are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. In other words, they don't need them. God is blessing. This is no small thing, by the way. Uh, you know, even in modern medicine, uh, there is a too many amount of babies who are not brought to full term and live, right? I mean, birth is not a given thing when it happens. And it's, 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 it's awful and it's sad. I remember, I remember whenever uh, a testimony that in, in we were, I was in South Asia and we were in this little village. And this village was, it was in the middle of nowhere. We had to actually walk to get there. No road. The village name was Rudy. And in Rudy, it was like 26 villages on the top of this mountain kind of circling it. All of them are family villages. And we're walking seven miles Back in my younger days, I could do it. And we walked up the mountain, we got there, and the gospel had gotten to Rudy. And through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the entire village of Rudy had come to believe the gospel and were meeting every single first day of the week for services. And they'd been doing it for like five years. And because of that, they've been persecuted from all these other villages. These other villages are coming down to them. They're persecuting them, making fun of them because it's a very strong, strong area in devotion to their gods, and their gods were many. And I remember meeting the head of that village, and, and, and I met him the first time. <clears throat> and I said to him as we were talking, me and him were just chatting. Had a, somebody helping me chat with him. But as we're talking, I, I remember talking to him and just saying, can you tell me, since your village has come to faith here and, and Jesus is worshipped in your village, can you tell me a way that God has blessed you? Can you tell me a way God's blessed you? And he started crying. Strong man who could walk up and down that mountain six times to my one. He started crying. And he said in his language, and the man looked at me and he said, since Jesus came into his village, they have not lost one child or mother in childbirth. And I said, really? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, is that that big a deal? Before that, one in three births would cost the life of the child or the mother on the top of that mountain. So much so, that other villages were coming saying, what are y'all doing? How can this be? How can it be that you're not losing your women or your children in childbirth? And they're asking them. And they had used that testimony to share the gospel with them. And it's the same thing we see here in Exodus. God blesses his people even in the direst of circumstances, even in the difficulty. God will grow his people and he will protect them and he will provide for them, right? In all things. And so here, 
He says that they're coming up, they're vigorous, they're giving birth. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. In other words, God blessed them, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Many times, midwives at the time weren't able to have children. That's why they're midwives. This is what they do. They help take care of other people's children because they were barren and weren't able to have children. Well, here is Shipra and Pua because of their faithfulness in fearing God. Now God has even blessed them with children and they're having children. God is all about life. What is Pharaoh all about? Death. God is about life. Pharaoh is about death. He's trying to put them to death. God is bringing them to life. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now he tells his people, not just the midwives, he says, if you see a son, if you see a son of the Israel, Israelites, of the Hebrews, throw him in the river and kill him. Could you imagine? But God continues to bless. God continues to bless. I just want to make one note here as I close. You see many things, the promises of God and how he fulfills them, the people of God and how he blesses them. We see, we see how God blesses his people even over and against difficult circumstances. We've seen that before, right? We oftentimes think everything's got to be perfect for us to grow in the Lord, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it's those things. But in reality, when you look back through Christian history and the history of God's word, it's in the most dire of circumstances oftentimes God blesses his people the most the most difficult of situations. And we see it here. He blesses his people and he does exactly what he says he's going to do. So we see God keeps his promises and his promises will be met. Nothing can stop them or thwart them, not even an angry Pharaoh who's trying to kill them. God will keep his promises. And no matter what the situation or how difficult it may be, God's promises are still true and he still blesses his people. And we see their growth here even in this situation. So we see all of those things. But what else do we want to see just quickly? I want us to understand a, a, a principle, I think, that comes out here. The local in light of the universal. What I mean by that is this is a story in a group of stories, right? Right? This full timeline of stories, this universe, this one big story. And this is just one story in a bigger story. And this story, obviously, and, and, and I hesitate to do it tonight, but I, you, you, know, you always want to do it. But it, it even gets better next week. And you'll see how this story is just pointing us to Jesus. In fact, Jesus was birthed into the same type of situation that we have right here. And so ultimately you see how this is pointing us there. And we'll see it really when we get to Moses. But you see this one big story, as I said, one main subject, one main story that is here. But don't lose sight in that one main story. And I, I point that out all the time, but don't lose sight of the, the local part of the story. This one main story, you still look into this moment at this time, and God is involved in the every intricate detail of his people's lives. He's taking care of everything. What's happening right here is, is these small details of how, how these, these ladies are giving birth and they're having children. And that may seem like it's just, uh, they're doing that all the time, but not here. God is doing this. He's bringing this about. He's, 
He is involved in his people's life. And he says, you go to Egypt, I'm going to pull you back. I'm going to be with you while you're there. Don't lose that one. When he tells Jacob, you go to Egypt, I'm going to make you great, and I will be with you. And God is keeping his promises here, that he will be with them. He'll be with them. And so in this moment, you see how God is taking care of his people and putting them all where they need to be, guarding them, protecting them, providing for them, even when the greatest of leaders that this world had to offer is there. And what we need to remember then is God is in control of the ones who are in control. Does that make sense to everybody? God is in control of the ones who are in control. It looks like Pharaoh can make a command and it happens, right? Except it didn't happen. Why? Because God had the heart. God had the heart of Shipra and Pua. And they knew his promises and they trusted him. And these two midwife ladies who can't have any babies, right? So they're midwives, and that's what they did for a living. These two ladies that are seemingly insignificant to the world stood up to the greatest, most powerful leader of their time and said, no, because God is greater than you. And so same for us, I think that we don't lose sight of God is intricately involved, not only in the big picture, that he has told us just like he told them, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. I will be with you, and I'm coming back to get you, to bring you back with me, right? We have those same promises, and we know that's true, but don't let you forget then at the same time that God is also intricately involved in every detail of our life watching over us and protecting us. He tells us through his word that before we speak, he knows the words on our lips. Before we step, he's already determined those steps. He tells us through his word that while we are sleeping, he's watching over us. And as we know, he's the one causing our heart to beat and our lungs to fill with oxygen and breathe. God is intricately involved in every part. He has not only ordained the end, he will bring us back to himself. He's ordained the means by which we get there. And each and every one of our stories is a testimony to his goodness and his graciousness, especially when we land faithfully home. Just think of their stories. Man, they had it rough. Joseph had it rough. The others had it rough. But they get home safe. Because God brings them home. Here in Exodus, this just gives us a glimpse. This first chapter ties it back to what's happened. How did they get there? Why were they there? What's going on? And now it's pointing us forward to what's coming. God is going to rescue his people from the bondage of sin and slavery. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It's good for us. Help us to be faithful, to follow it. Help us, Lord, in every way to trust you with every step, every heartbeat, every breath. For we know, God, you love us and you care for us and your desire is for us to flourish. And so may we be obedient to your word because in our obedience to your word is when we flourish as your people. Bless us, Lord, for your glory and for your name, we pray. Amen.